Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. We are continuing our series on questions. Remember, this topic has been influenced by you. So when you ask questions, I'm wanting to give you an answer as best as I understand from Scripture and our position, one of faith. And so if you ask questions like, are there aliens, don't blame me for talking about it. Okay, that was your question. And so uh, this morning, what we are going to be talking about is really destiny, predestination. And we're also going to be talking about if God knows what we need and only he's going to give us what his will is, why should we pray if God is only going to give us what he's going to give us anyway? So those are the couple of things that we're going to be talking about or focusing on this morning. And so we're going to actually be looking at Superman, walking a dog, apartheid, and orphans, okay? Tracking with me? That's, that's our scope for this morning. The Superman comic began by two kids in high school, a Jerry Siegel and a Joe Schuster. They sold the Superman idea to Detective Comics, which is DC Comics, and they got $130, I know, if you could take that back, right? I mean, you think of how many multi-millions of dollars have been made by the Superman figure. And a lot of times, when it comes to how we view God, there's really kind of four topics that we have that we kind of categorize, and it actually can be more than just this four, or they could have a combination of the two. But one of those, it would be what we would qualify as super beings. And this is where the idea of Superman comes in, where we see God just as a larger vision of us. You know, I can only be in one place at one time, but God can be in multiple places at multiple times. I am limited in my strength. God is omnipotent. And so everything that I can do, God can do to the nth degree. And God becomes this kind of super being 
that is out there. If I'm finite, then he's infinite. There's an episode of The Simpsons. I know I'm saying The Simpsons at a church service. Okay, there's an episode of The Simpsons where Homer Simpson prays. And he says, I don't know if you're real or not, but if you are, Superman, come save me, right? That's an idea a lot of people have about God. He is a super being. And even though we say, well, that's not true, oftentimes the way we act about God is very similar. Even some of the memes that you read, it's as if God is some super being who's going to come and rescue. And so super being is one of the ways that people look at God. Another way is what we classify as hyper being, H-Y-P-E-R. And hyper being is a God which is beyond our ability to conceive. God is bigger than anything that we can imagine. This is more of an orthodox view. This is pretty standard in our faith, is that God is greater than we can imagine. He is bigger than us in so many ways that we can't really conceive. In fact, God is bigger than that which we can conceive. So when you have a conception of God, understand that that is less than what he really is, but it is the starting point for us to engage with God and who he is. The other term is ground of being, G-R-O-U-N-D. And this is the idea that God is from which everything rises. It's like it grows from the ground, that God is the subject. He is not the object. He is the ground from which every conversation, idea, even illustration arises. God is not an object that you love. God is discovered when you love. That's how John says, here is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And here's how we can know that we are his disciples if we love one another. And so this knowledge is actually connected to the fact that we are producing something. And then there is effect of being where God is actually an event. God as an event. And God is the name that we give, which is something that is greater than what we actually think, but it's something that has to be participated in. That the good that happens is because God is sponsoring it and God is seen in those kinds of events. And and all these terms are helping us or trying to help us get our minds around how God works in humanity, in creation. And let's face it, God is bigger than we can imagine. God is greater than we can even conceive, even as we talked about last week. So then how do we start to understand how God works, especially when it comes to things like predestination, especially when it comes to things like how does God answer prayer? How are we going to conceive these things and and fill them in. And it's important that we understand that we need to find a way to connect to this so that we can begin to grasp hold of it. And and fortunately, I I think there is a, a line that God has given to us that connects us to him that maybe we're not even aware of. In Matthew chapter 7, if you'll turn to Matthew, we'll start 
really with one of the springboards of this topic, where Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Here is this invitation by Jesus saying that we are to ask, we are to seek, that we are to knock, and when we do, God responds. That this is reciprocal, that it's going back and forth, that God answers when we ask, that God opens when we knock, that God is there when we seek after him. He goes on, he says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for fish, Will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I think it's very insightful that Jesus tells us that the way we can understand God, or at least part of the way, is by understanding ourselves. If you then would act this way, what makes you think that God would be different? And the reason I think that's important is because there is something taking place that gives us an in on what is happening. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He says, there is one thing and only one in the whole universe which we know more about than we could learn from external observation. That one thing is man. We do not merely observe men, we are men. In this case, we have to speak inside information. We are in the know. You see, if we were created in the image of God, then we are more than just observers. We are actually participants in what God is doing. And so Jesus's words, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts, he's saying you have a connection that you know how you're supposed to act. That was given to you. God is in that showing you who he is and how he wants to work. And so instead of trying to grasp the magnitude of God and how he's going to do everything, we get a little glimpse of how he does things and what he shows and reveals within us. And undoubtedly, the scriptures give us that story that gets played over and over again. What does God care about? What does God love? How does God respond when we ask if we are to ask what is god's response to that we're going to go through a few examples i'm going to try and hit these quickly so bear with me in second kings chapter 20 we have an example of hezekiah the king hezekiah was given word that he's actually going to die and so he goes before god and he starts basically crying because he's going to die and so He starts being told by God in verse 1 of chapter 20. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. 
How would you like to get that news? I'd almost rather, just don't tell me, right? It's like, I, I don't want to know, but here comes this disclosure. You're going to die. You're not going to recover. Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord saying, now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle of the court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you on the third day. You shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And so here we have Hezekiah gets this news. You're going to die. And taking it like a man, he cries like a baby, right? And he says, oh God, I don't want to die. And then as Isaiah is walking out, he hears God say, go back, I'm going to give him 15 years. Now, what did that voice sound like? What did it sound like to Hezekiah coming from the prophet? How did the prophet hear the voice of God? Was this a hyper being situation? Was, was this a, a ground of being situation? How did God reveal himself I don't know. We're not sure. What we're understanding here is there's some kind of dialogue that takes place where God says, I have heard and this is now what I'm going to do in spite of what I was going to do. There is this idea that the tears of Hezekiah actually changed the mind of God, whatever a mind of God looks like. Now that's pretty wild to think about that this could actually affect these things now we have through this story the awareness that some pretty terrible things happened in those 15 years hezekiah gave birth to a son who was terrible so maybe it would have been better but the fact that god heard and seems to have changed his mind whatever that means puts a question, well, does God hear? Maybe when I ask, it actually does move the creator. There's another example that we have in Genesis chapter 18 that I think gives us some insight. Remember, Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty four, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against someone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. It's interesting that the idea of praying, receiving is connected to the idea of forgiving. But in Genesis chapter 18, we have the story of Abraham who encounters three men or three angels. One is the Lord. They're all called the Lord. We, again, have a lot of questions to this passage. And people who are certain of what happens, I always question. How can you be so certain that this is what's happening? Because boy, this is pretty wild what's going on. But in chapter 18, starting at verse 17, we see the Lord said, I shall hide from Abraham. What shall I hide from Abraham? What I'm about to do now, Abraham is listening to this. 
And this man, this angel, this Lord is saying, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Well, why is he saying it so he can hear it? Because he wants him to hear it, right? And, and so it's, again, helping us to understand that there is this conversation that's taking place with God and with Abraham. Verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. We'll get back to that. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteous and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. This is guts. They're heading there and he stands in the way. That's pretty telling right there. And he says, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Who says that to God? Again, something is taking place. The writer here is giving us an understanding through this story about the relationship. Because isn't that the question? Will God be as righteous as we are? Suppose, verse 24, there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? Again, what a question to present to God. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry. I will speak again, but once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. I don't think what's taking place is a, a percentage ratio. I don't think what we're getting in this conversation is, okay, yeah, if it's 10 to a million, then I'll go ahead and wipe the place out. I think what we're getting in this conversation is that God cares. God cares about the state and the heart of people. That God is not wanting to wipe out people. That he actually cares 
But remember, it was the outcry and the, the problem that was heard that caused the action. Just like when God sent Moses, it was because I heard the cry of my people, so I'm going to send you. I think what we're having here take place is this through this dialogue, we're seeing this kind of discourse that God is letting us know that he is as and more righteous than we are. That if it seems unbearable to us that God would wipe out the righteous with the wicked, why do we feel that way? If we feel that way, could it be that God feels that way? Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, we have the dialogue where Cain is upset because the Lord did not receive his offering, but he received his brother. And the dialogue says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Mark this verse. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? That is true today as it was for Cain when it was disclosed. But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If you do what is right. Now, if we don't have a concept of what is right, how can we choose it? If we are so depraved that we cannot even see right from wrong, how can we make any distinguishment between what God says is right? Again, To quote C.S. Lewis, he says, If God's moral judgment differs from ours so that our black may be his white, we can mean nothing by calling him good. For to say God is good while asserting that his goodness is wholly other than ours is really only to say God is what we know not what. You see, there is this understanding of good. Why? Because we were created in his image. And it's imprinted in our DNA to be able to see these things. And so it seems that there is an accountability to what's been given to us. That Cain, even though it was after the fall, was told, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But be careful. Because there is sin crouching at the door and it wants to devour it, but instead... You must overcome it. That seems to be the conversation that God is having throughout. Hezekiah prayed, got 15 more years. Abraham stood before God and debated his goodness so that he wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. God told Cain to do the right thing. A real Spike Lee moment right there. Whatever these passages mean, they're showing us that the interaction with the living God can alter the events for the future of those who are involved and for others. That the interaction with God can alter the events for the future, for us and for those who are involved. And God doesn't seem to think this is taking any power away from him at all. You know, when you're walking a dog on a leash, a lot of times the dog is just wanting to go. 
He's wanting, and say you're going to a dog park. If you're heading to a dog park, the dog can smell, hear the dogs, and he knows he's going to the dog park. And so you've got the leash and you're walking the dog, but then there's a pole in the way. And the leash goes, you know, the dog's on the other side and you're on this side, and the leash gets caught in the middle of the pole. The dog wants to go to the dog park, and you're wanting the dog to get to the dog park. But now the pole has interrupted the walk because the leash is caught in the middle. What you have to do to get that dog to the dog park is you need to pull him back and get him around the pole. To the dog, when you start pulling him back, he starts thinking, if dogs think this way, I don't know if they do, starts thinking, hey, the dog park's over there. Why are you taking me backwards? I want to go to the park. You are stopping me from getting to my destiny. And you're saying to the dog, even though you don't speak dog, you're saying, no, I want you to get to your destiny as well. But to get you to the dog park, you need to get back because there's a pole in the way, you idiot. But the dog doesn't understand the concept of the pole and all he sees is you stopping him from getting to his destination until you get him up and around the pole. So many times I wonder what pole is in the way that we don't see. We're wanting to get to a place. God is wanting to get to a place. But oftentimes we have to go backwards in order to get forwards. Oftentimes we have to go to our knees to be broken so that we can be healed. Oftentimes there are things that are beyond our ability to totally see and understand. And really what God is doing is trying to get us to this place because God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And if we do what is right, won't we be accepted? Sometimes to do what is right, to get to that place, God has to take us back and deal with some things. And so it's not that simple. It's not that black and white. It's not that clear. But we have an understanding that is able to guide us through some of these things. You know, Luke chapter 11, Jesus gives an example of a woman who's tenacious, asking to come and get, take care of her. It's a parable. And he says that this woman, even though they won't give to her just out of his goodness, but because of her tenacity. One translation says her shameless audacity, that persistence, that she does get what she wants. And again, Jesus is saying that you need to really want these things. Maybe we really need to weep like Hezekiah before the ear of God, however that looks, starts to move things. Because if we're not willing to go through it, why would God be willing to submit to it? You ever had kids that are ungrateful? No? Everyone's kids are grateful. Okay. (laughs) Where you feel like, why should I give you anything? You're not grateful for anything. And it's almost this idea of, you really want this? Because last time I gave you this, you left it out in the rain and it got rusted. If you really want this, I want to see blood in the game. I want to see you put your money where your mouth is. I want you to show me that you want it. It's like my first car, Volkswagen Bug, 1963, $600. 
It was cherried out. It was beautiful. I love that car to this day. My first automobile, something happens when you get that first car, right? No matter what that car is. There are kids at school who are getting Mustangs. Parents are giving them Mustangs. I know, that's just not right. How, how can there be a God? I'm out of here. No, you know. But you would see these kids abuse the car. They wouldn't treat it. Me, that Volkswagen, it was my life. All $600. I paid for that $600. My own flesh and blood. See, it means more when it costs you something. And so God is wanting to see what we care about by what we do and how much we involve ourselves in it. Well, who does God love? Who does God care about? Isaiah 56 Chapter 3, this is again the Old Testament, starting at verse 3, Isaiah 56. It says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Remember, we read that God was going to bless all the nations through Abraham. The foreigner is that, the other nations that are not a part of Abraham. And here we see the prophet saying, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from Israel. I'm different because I'm not of that tribe. Verse six, he goes on, he says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyfully in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Where have we heard that statement? Jesus. He cleared out the temple. Said it's written, my father's house will be a house of prayer. What was he speaking of? He was speaking about to the world, for all people, for the foreigner when they come here and what was taking place. They were making a profit on people so it was difficult for them to get to God and that got him irate. And so we see that God got mad in Jesus and he threw tables over and he had a whip and he was whipping people out of there and he was really ticked off. Why? Because this is supposed to be where everyone comes in and you are making it difficult. And so once again in these stories, we're seeing the posture of God is one that is welcoming those who no one else would welcome. God is welcoming. God seems to be reaching out to include, not separate or exclude. See another example in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, starting at verse 32. It says, likewise, this is Solomon dedicating the temple. If there was ever a place where you would want to exclude people, it would be in your house of worship. This is built for Israel. This is where we were worshiping, but here's his dedication. In verse 32 of chapter 6, likewise, when a foreigner who is not your people, Israel, comes from a far country, for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this house, hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all which the foreigner calls to you. 
in order that all people of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I built is called by your name. There seems to be a push by God to an inclusive election, but we keep pushing towards an exclusive election. I remember hearing for years that God does not hear sinners. And there's a verse in Isaiah where that's pulled out. But then you have these examples where they're saying, let those who are foreigners, those who don't know you, when they pray, answer. You hear Jesus saying, ask, seek, knock. You hear God telling Cain, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? I don't see God holding anyone back saying, you're not good enough. What I see is God opening the door and inviting people in. You see, when we start becoming exclusive, we start seeing terrible things happen. Apartheid in South Africa, you had 9% of the people who were white making laws for 81% of the people who weren't. And if you want to know what a Christian nation looks like that believes that God has chosen some people over others, look at South Africa because that government was not a non-religious system. To be a part of the government in South Africa, you had to belong to the Dutch Reformed Church that made the laws for the minority that wreaked havoc on the majority. And it was all from this attitude of chosen and not chosen. And that shows up anytime you start looking at yourself as being right with God and anyone else as being not right with God. I'm in your not. And what God is wanting to do is change that attitude. That happened to Israel with the other nations. God didn't choose Israel because they were better. He chose Israel so that through Israel, he could choose the world. He was wanting to reveal himself through this nation so that all the nations that were lost in their worship of depravity and so many things, could see the truth and find the true and living God. Paul does the same thing in Romans. He's trying to give us that understanding that he is wanting to do the same thing. The whole book of Romans was written so that the church that was there in Rome, the Jewish Christians would understand that the Gentile Christians had as much to be a part of that church and their faith as they did. And so we need to look at some difficult passages because it's easy to present the story, but what about those passages where they talk about different things? And we'll cover a few of them. I'm not here to put out, here's my scripture, here's your scripture. What I hope to do is get a little bit of an understanding of what we know about God and a lot of understanding of what we know about God from how he's made us and try and get a clear picture of what the scripture is actually saying. 
In Romans chapter 8, probably one of the more popular verses, it says in verse 29, For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Now, a lot of people have looked at this as this is a a way that you get saved, that Paul is trying to give us kind of a a map on how you come to salvation. But a lot of times people have a hard time with this verse when you get to verses 19 or 18 through 22 because they're not talking about salvation at all. They're actually talking about creation. And what we see is that creation is out of sorts and God is restoring all of creation, First, he's doing it through Israel to bring all nations to himself, but now he's doing it more clearly and finally through Christ. And that's why it says, be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among my brothers. He's talking about Jesus. Same thing we see in Ephesians chapter one. Again, a popular verse that's used a lot of times to kind of give an exclusive Mindset In chapter 1 of Ephesians, starting at verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight. Notice how many times we see the words in him, through his blood. You see, this is happening over and over again. It takes up 12 times in this first chapter we see in him or in Christ. We see it seven times in chapter 2. This is very much kind of the idea of Exodus and Deuteronomy. This is Israel's story and that how it has become our story now through Christ. That God through Israel was revealing himself to the world. That now God in Christ is doing the same thing. And when we are in him... We are called when we are in him, we are predestined when we are in him, we are justified. The calling card has been given through Jesus and it's calling out to everyone. Colossians 1, 19, 20 says this, For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile himself to all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's through Christ that God is reconciling all things. And all things means all things. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Because Christ has made the way so that you can come to God. Just as Israel was an example, Christ has become that example. Romans chapter 9, really chapters 9 through 11, there's a lot going on. But in verse 12 of chapter 9, 
It says that she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And there's this kind of illustration. Doesn't the potter have the right to do whatever he wants? And if he made some for this reason and some for that reason, who are you to say he can't do that? Remember the question that is being asked throughout the book of Romans. Why are the Gentiles allowed to be in here? The question isn't, They aren't good enough. The question is, God has opened the door so that they could be. And so this answer, if you will, this illustration, isn't meant to say that God can't tell them, no, they can't. But who are you to say God says no when God has said yes? That's his whole point. Once again, this is an Israel story that's taking place in Romans chapter 9. And it's spilled over into the whole world. When Paul says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, he is quoting from Malachi. He's not talking about the individuals. He's talking about the nation. In Malachi, what you have is the nation of Israel complaining to God that they are going through difficulties because God is disciplining them. And they're saying, why can't we be like them? Those Edomites, they're doing fine. And God says, no, Jacob I have loved, Esau have I hated. I've chosen you, and so I'm going to put you through more because you're mine. I love you. And we get all hung up with this kind of metaphoric language where, you know, Jacob I have loved, Esau I hated. What about when Jesus told his disciples that if you follow me, you cannot love father, mother, Wife, children, sister, brother, more than me. Does anyone take that literal? Anyone saying, yeah, Jesus said, I got to hate you, honey. Sorry. Kids, I really do like you. I'm fond. But Jesus said to follow him, I've got to hate. No, what is he saying? He's giving us an illustration to the extent of love. You see, as much as you love those who are most precious to you, God has to be the source of what that preciousness comes from. And the whole point of all these passages is really telling us that God is more inclusive. God is more generous. God is greater than you are. His mercy is more merciful than yours. And we need to understand that. I think there's a passage that displays that more clearly or really very profoundly in Matthew chapter 15. Starting at verse 21, Jesus is talking to the Canaanite woman. I want to be in that class. <laughs> we should all do that. Maybe they'd want to be here when they get. Jesus in Matthew 15, verse 21, there's the incident happens with the Canaanite women. Remember, the Canaanites were looked down upon. They were not from the nation of Israel. And so we have this exclusive attitude going on. And Jesus went away from there, withdrew to a district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from the region came out, was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. That's a bad thing. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. For she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep 
of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This does not seem like one of Jesus' better moments, right? Here comes a woman to him crying for the sake of her daughter, and he says nothing. I don't know how it is at your home if you say nothing when your wife or husband asks you, okay? They get almost as mad as if you disagree with them, okay? Indifference is probably the worst. She comes and she says something and he ignores it. That silence is making room for something. And sure enough, the disciples step into that room and they say, Lord, tell her to go away. She's bothering us. And so how does Jesus respond? He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they are like, yes, that's us. That's right. We told you, lady, get out of here. You're not one of us. It seems like Jesus is saying the same thing. But she kept, she kneels before him and says, help me. And he answers, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. See, the Jews saw the Gentiles as dogs. Now, there's no way to translate this as something nice. Some commentators say, well, really, the word he used is for puppies. That makes it better, right? Honey, you're a puppy. No, he's calling her a dog, saying less than human. And again, he's making room because this is the set mind of his disciples. This was the set mind of the children of Israel, Abraham's descendants, who were supposed to be a light to all nations. Their set mind was they are dogs. And then she responds, even the dogs will eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And then Jesus blesses her and says that her faith is great. Jesus is trying to change by force the value system of his disciples and really of the world, of humanity. His silence is giving an opportunity for the disciples to voice their heart and to be heard. And when he says he's only sent for the lost children of Israel, that she's a dog, it only confirms their concept of what they are and what she is. But then Jesus commends her for the faith. You see, she recognizes that she doesn't need a position at the table to receive the grace of God that is enough for her. That a little bit from a great God is more than she needs. And here they are thinking we are entitled because we are your children. Here we are with the Mustang rusting and being broken. And she's saying, I'll take the Volkswagen because that's what I really want. And Jesus commends her. Now, Jesus is either being disobedient to God, which he can't be because he is God, 
Oh, he's showing us the heart of God has always been this way. And they just didn't see it. Something about us likes to be better than others. Something about us wants to be right. And to be right, we need to prove everyone else wrong. Something about us wants to have an up on the others, whether it's nationality, pride, country, faith. Something about us, it's happened. There are more wars and death that happen because of racism. Even though you look at people and you say, you people look the same to me. Yeah, but we were born of this tribe. We were born of that tribe. Okay. Something about us wants that privilege. When we were in Mexico uh, last year, or maybe it's two years ago now, <coughs> people who went with us were talking to two of the, I think three girls. They were sisters there at the orphanage where we go to. And as they were talking, they found out, well, do you know where your parents are? They go, yeah, my mom and dad have separated. My mom now has children with her new husband that live with her. My dad has children with his new wife that live with him. Imagine living with the fact that your mom has kids that live with her. Your dad has kids that live with him. But neither one of them have chosen you. Something about that is horrific. Something about that hurts inside. What parent could look at a child and say, God, it's okay if you choose this one, but you don't have to choose that one. How outrageous is that? To think that God would love one of your kids, but say one of your, it's okay, you don't need to make it. You see, this is one of those things that bothers me more than so many because I feel like it is such a problem in the world today and we are called to be the answer. God called Israel to be the light. He's called us now to be the light. And when we start excluding people, thinking ourselves better than, because we have this faith, you don't, we start undermining the fact that God says, I want them to be a part of my tribe too. Oh, but God, you know, they've been involved with drugs and she used to be a prostitute. And God, you don't know what he did. God says, I want him. I have crumbs that are good enough to feed his soul for all eternity if you will allow him a place at the table. But you won't make room for it because you think it's your table. It's not your table. It's his table. It's his life given to you. And if you do what is good, will you not be accepted? I don't care who you are. That's God's word to you today. And the door is open and the table is set. And we are going to clear the table and we're going to make a place for you so that you know you could sit at this table no matter who you are, no matter what you have done. You have a right to be here by the God who calls you by your name, who's given his son for you. We will not accept anything less. This is the heart of God displayed throughout all scripture. means a lot to me if you can't tell (laughs) closing revelation chapter 5 
Verses 9, 10 says, As they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, God's intent was to make a new humanity from every nation, from every tribe, to bring them into a relationship with himself. And God has chosen us to do that. See, when you think about God choosing someone, I want you to see what that looks like. You see, I choose you. Take that rock. Now you need to stand up. I choose you. If you have the rock, I want you to stand up. If this rock touches your hands, I want you to stand up, and I want you two guys to choose someone else and give them that rock. Do it quickly because everyone's waiting. Now I want you to choose someone else and give them that rock. I want you to choose someone. See, these guys are going systematically. You're a little exclusive <laughs> in your choosing. Choose someone, give them the rock. Quick, quick, quick. Come on, you guys want to go see the game, don't you? <laughs> Come on. There's one rock, but look what's happening. You're making a choice. You just, I want you to say, I choose you. Give that rock to someone else. Stand up. If you get that rock, I want you to stand up, hand it to someone else. Let's make sure everyone gets it except one person so we can look on them. <laughs> Okay, get it over to someone. If you don't see him, get it over. Pass quick, quick, quick. Man, I should have had a lot more rocks, I thought. <laughs> thought this would go by quick. Choose. Come on, everyone. Make the cho- Choose someone, give them a rock. Choose that one, give them a rock. Make the choice, make the choice. Okay, everyone but John. Sorry, John, you're not chosen. <laughs> <laughs> Is everyone not standing? You can run it, run it back there. Pat, don't make Pat run back there and give him. Come on. Do you guys see everybody who's standing? This is how the choice of God looks. God chooses you so that you can choose someone else. God chooses you so that he can reach someone else through you. This is what election looks like. You are part of the process. And God's words to us, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? You know that it's the right thing to do, to be compassionate, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Let's love like he's loved us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have been chosen, not because we were special, not because we were better than, but because you loved us. And God, it is through us that you are to reach the world, that you have called us to continue what you've begun. Lord, you started with Israel. You fulfilled it in Christ 
and it is flowing now through your church, which is your people called by your name. God, may we not let anyone remain seating. May we not let anyone not receive that invitation. I pray, Father, that we would understand the responsibility, the importance of the choices we make, that we would call out to you, that we would intercede on behalf of those that we love, and that you would work powerfully in our midst. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with another song. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. May the love of God be seen in your life. May you recognize that you are the light of the world. And may you shine that light on everyone around you. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Enjoy Super Bowl. We'll see you next week. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.